Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. Today, we have Andy Klump, who's been a renewable energy executive for over 20 years, with over 15 years of operating experience in China. Andy is the CEO of Clean Energy Associates. This is going to be, uh, for many folks in the industry, including myself, a phenomenal opportunity to learn about the supply chain of what's going on, not just in solar and storage today, but looking back over the, the, the last 20 years and how things have changed, some of the opportunities that have developed in terms of efficiency, but also some of the challenges that have developed uh, around COVID. You know, supply chain was a fear many folks talked about in the earlier part of uh, 2020 when when COVID really started to hit. And we, we'll talk about that and talk about what the future holds for the industry, uh, both here in the U.S. And, and overseas. Andy's a really phenomenal guest with a deep experience in the space. And I was uh, lucky to have him on today. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Andy, thanks so much for joining us at Experts Only. John, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So we were talking offline. You grew up in St. Louis. Uh, now you're living overseas and have been there for almost 20 years. Let's sort of walk through the story. First of all, when you were in St. Louis, what's, what sort of uh, first got you? Was it then that you got interested in things like energy and the environment, or was it sort of as you progressed in your career? Uh, so uh, I, I will definitely give my mom the credit for getting me interested in the environment. I was never in, uh, much of an energy wonk uh, until later on in my life, but I was always very passionate about the outdoors. And I would say it was really my my dad, who uh, he was a cab driver for 44 years, and so we we never went anywhere for a vacation, but my once a year trip was to go to the Boy Scout camp and get in the, you know, go to the woods. But I, I just remember always did you just go to film on at all when you were scouts. I, I did do film on. Yes. Yeah, so I was in a, that was my first uh, big trip outside of the, the bi-state area of Missouri and Illinois. Oh, that's amazing. But, uh, so, so that was when I was 15, I went to film on, but I was, did um, you get your yeah, Eagle Scout? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Good. So Same I was, here. Same here. So, yeah, I was I was dead set on selling pizzas every year so I could go to summer camp for free. And that was that was my one week of vacation every year. So that's amazing. But my mom was um, was always the one who kind of got me into uh, recycling. We always you know, picked up you know cans when we went to the the park. And so I still remember the first two dollars and thirty seven cents I had was when I took a trash bag full of you know cr- you know crunched uh, aluminum cans to the the recycling center. So that was kind of a big deal uh, when I was five or six to make money like that. So I was yeah. always conservation and enjoying the outdoors. And so then you went, you went up going to Northwestern and you studied economics. What, um, what sort of, what point along that path? You're like, Oh, economics makes sense for me. I should dive into that space. Like where, what was there? Was there a trigger point or was it just sort of a, a natural next step and you were heading off to college? So, so to be honest, um, you know, I, I, I applied to seven schools. I got in everywhere, but I, I really had no clue because I, my parents didn't go to a traditional uh, yeah. school. My mom eventually got her degree uh, at the age of 34, but uh, they never went. They never went uh, to, my dad was just a high school uh, graduate and then just went to work. So I didn't really have much guidance, but yeah. um, the one thing I always asked my dad is he, you know, he had the list of seven schools I got accepted to. He talked to every single customer. Every single one kept saying great things about Northwestern. And so I said, well, maybe that makes a difference. And if I want to do business one day, maybe that reputation matters. So that was really the extent of my 
my, uh, my, my choice. And the second factor was that they gave me the most financial aid. So yep, yep. Uh, it was, even though it's the most expensive school and up being a uh, lower cost than everything else because of uh, all the grants. So I said, okay, it's a done deal. So uh, at that point, I, um, I, I just chose economics because it was the only undergrad business program uh, at the oh, school. Interesting. Yeah. Around, so. And did you go, when you finished, did you go immediately for your MBA or was it, would you work in between? No, I uh, I did something. Uh, you know, so I, I I was graduating right into the the massive tech boom. But you know, Northwestern being a little more um, you know Midwestern sleepy school, like not sure. a lot of folks were into tech. So I thought I was doing something dramatically different when I moved to Austin, Texas, and I worked for a software company. But I was just excited to be in a high growth, uh, yeah. you know, exciting environment, and so. I did tech for a few years and then I was just getting to the point where I said, look, you know, it'd be good to go, uh, maybe go on the sidelines and get my MBA, uh, right when the first, you know, uh, kind of economic downturn was happening in, in 2001 and the tech, tech bubble burst. And so, uh, you know, I, I just applied to Time that one up, right? <laughs> and said, yeah, I, I just said, look, I'll either, I'll either go big or go home. So I just said, I'll apply to one school, see where it goes. I got in and then the rest is history. Yeah, how did your how did your folks in St. Louis think about it when you got into Harvard? Oh, it was uh, it was it was just super exciting. You know, once yeah. again, one for my family to go to Harvard, and you know, I was kind of the always the underdog kid. Um, I, I still remember telling my mom when I got in, she literally did not say anything other than the phone, and I just said, "Are you there, mom?" And yeah. she just, <laughs> I, I just, I hung up. I started calling every other friend, and later she said she just had to sit down. And she just was so shocked. So. Uh, it was, it was, That's it was definitely a lot for them. So they were, um, they were very, very proud. Yeah. I always think about my, my folks, uh, my dad was an insurance agent and my mom was a teacher. And, and when I talk about finance or energy, they, it just, it's, uh, my dad has for a long time listened to the podcast so he can understand what I'm doing, but it was <laughs> like when I f- finally worked at the white house, they're like, Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Now, I, now we understand what you, we don't, still don't understand what you're doing, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, very basic uh, education I, I try to have, but, uh, but look, I, I love my parents. They taught me everything. Uh, they, they, they taught me all the, the key things, but really pretty much nothing with respect to my career or professional endeavors. So it's, I had to learn a lot of that on my own. So, so you, you, you graduate Harvard and then you end up working at Trina. Did that happen immediately or did you move into another space post Harvard? No. So my, my path was really, um, I had this, um, this itch to go to Asia and it happened because I had, um, had a friend who was traveling around the world while I was, I was working in consulting for a little while. And he sent me these amazing stories from Asia. And I said, look, I'm never going to have a chance to go to Asia until I, unless I had a big you know chunk of time. So I, I took a, a, I had a few months off right before business school. And so I went to Southeast Asia and I was just, my eyes were open to a wholly different world. Oh, this and is Harvard. So you went from Austin yeah, to Asia. So, gotcha. So exactly. So I actually, prior to starting at, uh, at Harvard, I actually went to uh, Southeast Asia. I traveled for a few months knowing I was going to start in the fall of 2001. And, um, you know, that was, um, obviously, obviously a very traumatic period with, with 9-11 sure. But it was um, I, at that point. I said, "Look, I want to. I want to go to Asia. I want to at least spend a summer living in one city. I, I really only lived in a handful of cities in the U.S., let alone never even traveling to Asia." So, uh, I during my first first year, I made a quick trip. Uh, loved every minute of it. I said, "I'm uh, come hell or high water. I'm going to be in China." I started studying Mandarin on the side oh, wow. and uh, just just kind of jumped into uh, an internship with Intel in 2002. And once I talked my way into that role and I actually was there on the ground and I started studying the language quite intensely, then I went back to business school 
And I enrolled to a Harvard undergrad. And so I was actually taking the, the bike uh, 15 minutes every day to Harvard undergrad to study Chinese, not for the grades, but just to learn the language. Yeah. And so I became super, super focused on just how can I learn the language and make enough connections to, to get a job there? And then I ended up landing a job with Dell. And so I talked to a lot of CEOs who came and gave presentations. And I asked them two questions. I said, where do you wish you uh, spent from a geographic perspective? And what was the skill set you wish you had had? And they all said China and they all said the sales. So I said, that's it. That my goal is to work in sales in China. I just knew I had to stay with the same functional area or same yeah. industry. So that's why I went kind of from software and consulting to uh, to hardware. And I took the job with Dell. Uh, and there was there was no ad saying, hey, we're looking for a, a six foot five yeah. <laughs> uh, non-Chinese speaker to sell computers to Chinese. But I kind of talked my way into it. And I was the only foreigner in a 900-person sales force. That's me. So, but I said, look, I first want to get there working in multinational and then transition to work for a Chinese company and really help a Chinese company go global. And it was just you know, right place, right time. I got to know one of the investors in Trina Solar. Back when Trina was a tier three manufacturer that no one knew, 500 folks. Uh, and I was the first uh, non-Chinese member of their executive leadership team. And so we just helped uh, the company ramp up about 10x in those two years. I was part of the IPO deal team. I translated for the CEO when we were you know, on the roadshow and uh, you know, getting to know investors. And what, uh, but what my time job was, was You started CEA, what, in 2008? Yes, correct. I started CA the fall of 2008. Um, I started Trina in um, the fall of 2006. So I I started Trina knowing that the investors uh, put capital in. They wanted to have an IPO by the end of the year. And so I was part of the team that was working IPO. But functionally, my title was Vice President of Business Development. And I helped uh, really solve a lot of supply chain issues because that was the big challenge that Trina had. And over the course of two years, I traveled around with the CEO, uh, translated for him, but we did a lot of different international deals that secured Trina supply, allowed Trina to kind of scale and become a a tier one, tier two, and then eventually tier one manufacturer. And then at that point in time, uh, I I just got married to my wife, uh, who's actually from Dallas, Texas. And um, she was the one who- No, we actually met uh, met in Beijing. So um, she moved to Shanghai together uh, with me and I- Fortunately, had the good uh, good vision to at least uh, you know, propose to her before I uh, yeah. <laughs> before we made that trip. So she had a ring on her finger, knew I wasn't run away, but like I did not see her for the better part of two years. Wow. Uh, for about a year after we were married, and so finally I said I want to stay married to her and not to Trina. So yeah, um, I said goodbye to the company and said I'm just going to forge my own path with CEA. Yeah, so let's talk about that for a second because you first of all you come into clean energy sort of through the hardware side of things, which is really interesting. And you, so you, you saw a niche and the opportunity around CEA. Of course, you decided to start it right in the beginning of the financial crisis, which is fascinating timing. But also, you know, we've talked a lot about this show about the, the steroid injection that came with the American Recovery Act. And, you know, I think you were, you were in a great place at the, once you had that set up. But what was, the, what was the opportunity you saw that drove you to launch CEA? Well, one of the the, the mysteries of, uh, of why I chose this path, it was actually rooted in the fact I had this sales job with Dell because they had a, a mandatory requirement. I had to have 20 sales meetings every single week. Right. So I had to line up my schedule and was constantly traveling, constantly meeting with clients. And so I just always had a natural curiosity to ask questions. And so I would go to every uh, meeting and I would say, by the way, is it possible for me to just look at your factory out back and just give me a quick tour? And so... I went and I saw dozens and dozens of industries 
on you know, many different manufacturing you know, types. I was never an engineer, right. but I just found that like so interesting. And so when I studied the different manufacturing, you know, supply chains and operating environments, and then I went to solar, I thought, well, this is really, really bizarre. You have this really, you know, small, you know, small industry with a bunch of a lot of batch processes. No one really thinks about quality. And you've got to have the products working for 25 years when these companies just got started like two or three years ago. I said, right. something just doesn't seem right. And then I saw the processes. So I naturally, when I worked for a manufacturer, I was always in the factory. I would always take clients or investors, but like I would always just make friends with the guys on the different shop floors. And so I'd ask about, you know, what they were doing and you know, why are you getting everything ready and clean up? They're like, oh, well, some, some investors coming tomorrow from a bank. And so I was like, okay, well, what, what's going on here? And they said, yeah, we have to make the place look good. So, you know, we, they rolled out the red carpet. They treated the guy really well. You know, he was jet lagged, tired, you know, had a late, yeah. late, late lunch, you know, and they're like, all right, let's ship him back off to Spain, make him happy. And then we bring out the rest of the, the stuff. And I was like, what other stuff is like, oh, we have to get rid of the old work in progress and inventory just to, uh, to clear out the workshop. So at this point, it doesn't really matter. He's just here for a day. And I was like, that's kind of odd. You know, you're, yeah. <laughs> you're selling that product. Um, you know, why don't we just like work on the quality systems a little bit? And so, you know, I, I, I met with and I understood the quality side, understood the testing side. And I saw how the sausage was being made from the inside. And so after two years of Trina, I said, um, you know, well, I, I'm curious to see some other factories. So because I was in a high visible role in the industry, I had, you know, Sean Chu from Canadian, Dr. Shi from Suntech, Mr. Miao from Yingli. And, and all their, their the, the top CEOs would call me and say, hey, we want you to do exactly what you did for Trina, but do it for us. And so I knew full well I had a non-compete with Trina, and I wanted to maintain that uh, you know the, the strong bond I had with the, the board members and the, the executives. But I was interested to take every one of those calls. So I, in a very short period of time, I visited dozens of factories, saw a lot of different operating environments. And I said, there is just a world of hurt that's going to help come in this industry if you have so many different quality levels at so many different plants and so many customers are really clueless about what was happening. I said, you know, it just, it just, I just have to play this role of like helping folks understand. So my first few engagements of doing supply chain work and quality, I actually did it for free just for friends I knew. And then I realized, you know, they keep calling me, I should just start charging for this. And I, that was the, the core of my business. And I thought it would be doing other things. So right. I was really misguided and a clueless entrepreneur when I started, but I, I kind of learned the ropes. And it really, to, truth be told, it wasn't really until 2012, you know, I'd say where, you know, four years of my business where we really, uh, you know, muddled along a lot of different things. But then we really started to kind of nail our processes, you know, organically build our team. We made a lot of mistakes along the way, but like at that point, our business, you know, quintupled from like 2012 to 2016, and just Amazing. going through that massive growth was uh, was pretty unique uh, experience. So, yeah. Uh, so for, for the for the audience, Clean Energy Associates, you know, I may get some of these numbers wrong, so correct me. But you've got over 135 folks now. With, I love that you guys say over a thousand years worth of experience. That's amazing. Um, but 85 of them are engineers, right? And you are all sort of working both in, in solar and storage. I do want to come back to the storage piece of this in a little bit. Uh, and your, your focus is very much on on risk in the supply chain, working with teams. So correct, correct. Give a, give a little bit of color to that. Give me like a little case study of something you guys have done recently that you can talk about. 
Yeah. So, you know, once again, um, you know, our, our work, as you mentioned, uh, does, does encompass a lot within solar, but we also do a lot in energy storage. And so right. um, we've, we've worked with a lot of uh, major IPPs and developers. Uh, once again, the combined market cap of the companies we work with is actually $2.8 uh, based on today's so uh, statistics, so we we work with some pretty big players in the sector. Um, so I can't uh, I can't disclose uh, all those folks due to NDAs, but sure. um, I'll say some of the you know the RE100 are our clients, uh, some of the large uh, IPPs and utilities we work for. But look, I mean, we're helping anything from you know helping to you know identify the right suppliers, to negotiating contracts, doing contract reviews, the whole supply chain bit, kind of. You know, dawn to dusk is, is something we do, um, not just on modules, but also inverters, racking, other BOS components. And then we basically take the you know, our, our teams, our 85 engineers and inspectors, and we just throw them into the different factories. And I've always had this belief, once again, because I spent time in, in the factories, I said, look, having uh, some independent third party that is doing the work on behalf of the downstream clients, right. there is a lot of value in that that you don't see with other industries. Once again, a uh, you know, this, this cell phone you're going to you know throw away in a year or two, but when you put panels on a roof, they better work uh, and they better not yep. cause a fire for yep. at least 25 years. So, <laughs> right. you know, that's where a lot of our team and our core value proposition is around the quality assurance side. But then once again, those same customers are asking us, hey, can you help out with owner's engineering on the ground? And and that's when, you know, we set up our, our operations in 2013 in the U.S. and we started growing and scaling a team. So actually our team outside of China is bigger than our Chinese organization now. And, and that's where a lot of our growth has happened uh, in the U.S. So we've nearly doubled our team in the last you know, 18, 24 months. But a lot of the work we're doing is site-level inspection, both on rooftops as well as large-scale, uh, large-utility uh, ground-mount uh, you know, installations. But we're the, we're the technical advisor who's basically helping the long-term owners uh, of these assets gain comfort and you know, reduce their, their risk as they see these projects being deployed. Is most of that work being done at the utility scale projects? Are you doing anything in the DG it's, side? It's definitely, it's definitely more uh, weighted towards the utility scale, but you know, we, we still do a lot of work on the DG side as well. So yeah. uh, what's gonna be, we have teams in over a dozen states, uh, a number of PEs, you know, a couple of you know, PhDs. And so our teams are looking at various aspects of, uh, of a system and trying to help uh, design kind of cost-optimized solutions. So look, I mean, some folks come to us who you know, have a DG portfolio, and, you know, once again, we have to look to say, all right, what's your budget? We'll customize a plan around that. And so I think we're, we're very different. Um, you know, we, we certainly run across Black and & Beach and DMVGL and Lidos quite a bit. But I think a lot of folks come to us because we're, one, we have a lot of domain expertise. We're, we're very strong in what we do, particularly around the supply chain, but also because we're a lot more nimble and yeah. flexible based, based on what the market needs are. So let's talk about the supply chain for a second. I mean, sort of Flashback to where you were in 2008 to sort of where we are today, you know, how is it, how has the supply chain uh, become sort of more efficient or what major changes have you seen sort of throughout that decade? And, and are you seeing it in this, the follow on which I want to ask you about is, is the storage piece. Are you seeing that begin to happen on the storage side? Uh, I mean, absolutely. Like it's just night and day compared to where I started the industry. I mean, I still remember uh, the industry was just changing the form factor from you know 125 millimeters uh, wafers to 156. Right. And you know, if I just hone in on wafers as one key thing, which maybe not a lot of people go that far upstream in the supply chain, but wafer technology was very, very standard. 
Explain the wafer is just for folks that aren't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So once again, if you if you look, um, you know, once again, uh, elemental silicon is the second most common element in the Earth's crust, with roughly you know twenty four percent of the Earth's crust. So you're basically you know picking up rocks out of the ground. You then you purify that into metallurgical grade silicon, which is roughly ninety eight point five to ninety nine percent of pure silicon. It goes through a process which is kind of the quote unquote the start of the crystalline supply chain. And that is creating polysilicon in a huge, giant petrochemical-like facility. And so that creates purity levels of anywhere from uh, 99.49s to 99.99s in uh, in a pure uh, state. Then that uh, that all those gray rocks, if you will, when you see them, they get melted into either a solid crystal called monocrystalline, or it's created into a multi-crystalline block, uh, which is called you know multi-crystalline. And then they're effectively sliced into wafers, which look gray. They're then treated with a silicon nitride uh, deposition layer, which turns them into a blue or sometimes a black color. And then those get metallized on the top and those get mounted into a module. Right. So the module is what a lot of folks just know as a solar panel. So that's the supply chain in, in uh, two minutes or less. No, that's, but, that's fantastic. And I think for a lot of listeners who are in solar, aren't even aware of that, right? So when you, how much of that early stage silicon development is still happening in China today versus how much of it now is moving to other other countries? Yeah, so it's, it's a couple interesting trends that happened since I started. I and mean, once again, I sourced polysilicon. I visited dozens of facilities around the world. And at that time in 2006, less than 5% of the world's supply was actually made in China. So it was dominated by uh, you know large American players like Hemlock, uh, Wacker, Kemi in Germany, uh, Tokiyama in, in, uh, you know, in Japan, and a few others were just starting in Korea. So now the the market shifted, and so over you know over seventy percent of the world's polysilicon is uh, is made in uh, in China, and you know these the the technologies change quite a bit. So it's 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 literally gone through over ninety seven percent a price drop from the peak in two thousand eight. So it uh, is going through a massive industry transformation where effectively you had an oligopoly of five players that controlled ninety percent of supply. Then I went to several dozen folks, or I went to hundreds of folks at one point in time who tried to get into it. Then it narrowed down to a few dozen, and now there's really, you know, once again a smaller number of, of big players. But the industry won't go short like it's it's been in the past. Yeah. So how is you know I think one of the and I'll, I'll come back to storage in a second, but just quickly, I mean one of the fears earlier this year when COVID really started to take off, especially in China, right? Where 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 supply chain concerns. Right, that we're we're we going to get what we needed to put in the ground. Uh, ver- you know, there's still obviously other concerns about can you actually get your engineers deployed in some states to go do the work. But supply sure. chain was over and over again in in May, in June, in July. It was a repetitive thing that was being talked about at the SIA at the level and at the solar energy industry level, and others were people were really freaked out about it. What was going to happen? We saw some. Can you talk a little bit about what we saw in terms of supply chain uh, blips this year? You know, do we expect that to smooth out? Was it did that ever the wave of concern that people have ever really crystallize into actual like supply chain problems? Oh, I mean, a- absolutely. Like it was, uh, it was a very traumatic period, and and when I say traumatic, it started on my side with my family and I uh, having traveled. Uh, we actually left China in mid January. We heard about this virus and just kind of you know ignored the news. Uh, but we actually uh, were keenly aware in mid-January when Chinese New Year happened, and all of a sudden these cases started to proliferate, and they we were forced to shut down our office. 
uh, and no one could even go in. And, wow. you know, these very restrictive measures were in place. And so we said, wow, you know, this is very serious. And we watched it very closely, but we extended our stay in Indonesia first by a week. And then the later we just rolled a couple of our kids in school in, uh, at, you know, in, uh, in Bali and, and just stayed there for two months. Cause we said, we're just wait for this to kind of blow over. Yeah. Um, but look, we were tracking very closely because look, all of our engineers, um, went into, you know, had to go into to quarantine if they were in, uh, we actually had two folks in the, in the Wuhan area. And so they were about an hour outside the city, but the whole province was locked down. Yeah. And then, you know, all the factories shut down. So, uh, for a period of, uh, you know, anywhere from two to six weeks, some of the factories still maintained, you know, 30 to 50% utilization because not all the workers went home, but for the most part, no one could really move around. So some factories were stuck, uh, for a period of a few weeks, maybe a month or more at this, uh, somewhere in no utilization, somewhere at 50% utilization. So there absolutely was this concern that the supply chain won't react and, you know, the world's going to be starved of modules, but that uh, didn't account for two things. One, it didn't immediately impact the U.S. because a lot of the s- suppliers are actually based in Southeast Asia or Korea. And they the be- the bigger players actually had supply chains which were already domestically located at those specific countries. So they were okay. A few that were weaker were relying on the China supply chain and they were impacted. So we saw utilizations go down in, in those regions. But once again, as China got its its you know handle around the you know the pandemic, these factories started to open up. And so I remember being asked that I had to wave, sign a document that say, if I have to like release all, you know, all, 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 in, all in any um, kind of uncertainty related to the pandemic. Uh, if my team went in and we caused any kind of problem, I was right. like, I'm not going to sign that document. I'll, you know, banker my company overnight. But, um, but once again, they, slowly they opened up, I would say in end of uh, February and into March. And by the end of March and early April, I mean, all the factories in China were um, were, were back up and uh, and running again. But conversely, we all know the story. Uh, it started to spread in the West. Um, right. I was actually in the U.S. and traveling between Indonesia and, and the U.S. twice during this period. And then, uh, you know, I kind of scrambled back uh, to Indonesia to be with my family. And then uh, then we spent the better part of six plus months in the U.S. Uh, and that's where my story goes further down the rabbit hole. Yeah. We sent our uh, it's a different conversation I'm gonna have at some point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we went to the Houston consulate uh, two days before Trump closed it, and so it was, it was a oh. there was a lot of comedy that went about. But we ended up coming back to China, and that's um, that's where I'm calling you from uh, is Shanghai today. So, if you had any message for the industry of what 2021 looks like in terms of a supply chain, uh, are, are people's are people should be less concerned and just continue to execute, or what does 2021 look like? So it's, what's interesting is um, I would say it's business as normal, but normal is not normal in the solar industry. So right. what we're actually encountering, uh, encountering right now is there's actually a shortage of glass and uh, some of the other subcomponents like EBA. And so that's actually having an impact of a, a penny plus a watt just on glass alone. So we've seen uh, a supply oh, chain shortage yeah. of glass in this point in time, because once again, China... Um, you know, pretty much shut down all, uh, you know, all, all manufacturing facilities and, and installations in Q1. In Q2, Q3, they still are doing about 18 gigawatts worth in those two core quarters. But then they they chose to, once again, le- unleash the, the beast. And so in Q4 of this year, we've really seen about another 18, if not 20 gigawatts worth of uh, modules that went into the China market. So that shortage of uh, raw material components compounded with the fact that the government's been trying to reduce 
some of these energy intensive manufacturing facilities around glass, um, that's actually caused a squeeze on solar glass that's had a meaningful increase in cost. So uh, is that glass not- shortage across other industries as well, not just with us? Yes. And so once again, it's, uh, it's, you know, there's also still a construction boom right now, China, like a lot of other yeah. places is stimulating the economy. So there's still a lot of construction happening. So there's a limited number of, of glass factories that can make the specific, the specifications for solar glass. And then you also have an increase in glass needs due to the massive shift towards bifacial. So as a result, you, you see this squeeze on glass during this period of time, but with the lack of new permits to operate some of these facilities, we think the shortage may last another couple of quarters. So um, these squeezes in the supply chain have happened. We've helped our clients navigate around them and uh, some advanced procurement and various partnership strategies can offset some of the risk associated with, uh, with some of these one-off pinches. But um, once again, so a lot of these causes are actually not directly due to the the pandemic, but it's a second order of effect. And this is part of the work that we do to help, uh, help our clients uh, understand and navigate these waters. So to transition out of solar for a second, and I'm going to look at storage before we end here. And, and you know, the storage industry is been in the precipice of a boom for a while now. Um, and I think with the, a new Biden administration coming in, there's going to be some alignment of uh, tax incentives and and policy that has never been there before for the industry. You've got states here in the U.S. like Massachusetts and California, of course, in, in New York really starting to align the, the local policies. So the acceleration of storage is, is bound to happen here over the next uh, next couple of years. And, you know, it's still, though, a relatively new technology, right? It's it, Would you say it's like solar in terms of like 2008, 2009 timeline? Or where would you sort of put it in that? that, uh, that gr- and I ask that from an efficiency standpoint, right? As, it, sure, as the industry sure. starts to bring efficiency. No, no, of course. So, you know, once again, I think uh, we both know the supply chain enough to say like there's massive differences between the storage energy for supply chain and solar. But, but, but once again, there there are some similarities. I, I think the biggest difference, obviously, is the was what's at risk. And you've seen these cases of fires, even among you know some of the Korean manufacturers that you know quote unquote the, the safest of the of the blue chips um, still have, have seen issues in terms of a product quality that's resulted in thermal events. So. Uh, but you know, once again, that aside, uh, there still are similarities. Once again, you have this immature supply chain. Uh, you also have this. Uh, you know, at that point in time, uh, you know, just I was describing polysilicon the same way on the module side. Less than five percent of the industry was making modules back in the day I joined the sector. So you know, very immature supply chain in China. But you know, what's what's very unique is like you know, you, we've now seen as industries grown in scale the last several years. Really, on the uh, is what's going energy storage is the gnat on the back of an elephant of uh, right. of the whole electric vehicle trend. That's what's really driven these massive cost synergies and cost reductions, and that's uh, very you know very very similar to solar. So once again, the the efficiencies uh, that are gained through you know technology advancements, also the scale of the industry, and that uh, you know reducing the cost. Those um, those themes are absolutely very similar. And I might say it's like solar 2004 or five. So I still think it's wow. very, very early yeah. and uh, there's still a long way to go. Uh, but look, the, the industry, the energy storage industry is just going to continue to grow massively. And I think we're really just starting to see that ramp. Uh, we've been we've been involved in this sector uh, really as early as 2011 was my first visit to an energy storage facility. It was really long on 2014 that a couple of our leading clients said, hey, we want to start seeing facilities in China and Korea. And then I, I just kind of doubled down and said, 2015, we're getting into this sector. And so, 
the last five years, we built up a great team. You know, the head of our of our uh, quality team in China has got 19 years of battery cell manufacturing experience. So we go into a lot of depth, um, not just at the the module, but also at the you know battery cell technology, PCS, and the other subcomponents. So a lot of folks are really coming to us and saying, "Look, we've we've worked with integrators, or we've we've seen this, but the economics just don't pencil. Help us to." You know, to create a better solution. And so we've really helped with uh, customized supply chain solutions that allow, allow the industry to grow. But the, the sector is actually getting there. Uh, so, so it's very exciting. Two final questions. And, and I'm going to sort of flash forward now to 2030. At this point, you'll have been running Clean Energy Associates for 22 years. You can, you know, the next decade, um, you know, for me, the last decade has been about alignment, right? Alignment of policy, alignment of efficiency, not just in the supply chain, but in finance and all these other pieces. And the next 10 years is going to be about uh, deployment and execution, especially if we're going to solve our climate challenges, which continue to, to uh, offer grand, grand challenges. You know, what is looking back in, from 2030, you know, what does this decade represent to the industry and what's it going to look like in 2030? Oh, I mean, uh, look, we're, we're absolutely going to see, uh, you, know, subst- you know, I'd say exponential type growth uh, over the next uh, yeah, and I would really kind of characterize more 2022 is I think where you're going to really start to see the the steep curve. But, yeah. you know, equally, we're going to see, you know, a five to 10 X in the industry size. Uh, we're going to see substantial drops in, uh, in cost and improvements in technology. I, I think pretty much like every renewable energy deployment, uh, when you get, by the time you get to 2023, 2024, it will absolutely have a storage component and, uh, one that's going to be you know, really operating the grid in a totally different uh, realm. So I think by 2030, unfortunately, the you know the the, the risk of climate change. We're we're now getting the attention right. of politicians. So I have a feeling that there's going to be a lot of uh, you know pretty extreme measures as you get the later part of the decade. Uh, but I really I would expect coal in the U.S. to to uh, be well below single digits. I think it'll be just complete all, all coal plants will be shut down. So I, so I think there's there's absolutely going to be a you know, a, a very uh, even where you uh, are, even you think even in China where they're putting a oh, coal oh, plant on a I mean, quarter. China's China's energy demand is just so massive, um, and if you look out once again, China's made a commitment to twenty sixty, you know, to be um, you know to be carbon neutral. But I I, I know that 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 number is going to that it, data is going to be pulled in. Uh, if they're going to do this over time, yeah. Uh, but look, they, they are they feeling the political like, pressure there like they are in the states? No, I think it's a it's a different type of pressure. I think it's um, I think it's really driven by a forward thinking government approach to say, look, they want to embrace the renewable energy uh, right. you know, and really try to invest and be ahead of the curve. So I don't think they're necessarily taking uh, you know, political pressure the same way that uh, U.S. politicians yeah. hear it. I think they're you know once again, uh, and, and if you look at the political systems, obviously dramatically different. But one of the things about China that's so fascinating is that every single you know, politician, they have a science or engineering degree. They know how to build things. So the yeah. amount of, uh, of, of uh, infrastructures that built in my you know, 18 years here is just, you know, it's off the charts. And I have no doubt they're they're going to go through a similar boom. I actually think 2021, my predictions, we're going to see the, the largest deployment of solar in, uh, in Chinese history. The last one, as you know, was 2017. It had a peak of 53 gigawatts. I think it's going to be more than 60 gigawatts. And we're going to see wow. true security in some of the Western parts of China. So there, there absolutely is going to be a 60-plus gigawatt deployment for the next five years uh, in China just on solar. But if you combat that with wind, you know, once again, astounding numbers, but they're not going to be independent of coal. They're not going to be able to shut down all the coal plants by 2030. 
I think it's probably going to take another decade. But they are uh, rationalizing the coal facilities, uh, running them more efficiently. And, and you know, once again, you still have to look through, you know, China just with so many people, they they look at the million, right. millions of plus workers in the coal industry. They're not going to just lay them off and redeploy them on solar. Solar just crossed over 2 million of employment within uh, within China. But a lot of those are actually the downstream deployment teams. It's not just those manufacturing the core products. That's where I think, you know, similarly in the U.S., the path to economic recovery uh, is has renewables all over it. Yeah. But it's really going to be more of a technology innovation angle and, and really true you know, deployment of mass amounts of blue-collar workers um, who are uh, making sure these systems are deployed properly. And CA is going to be there to make sure that they're uh, deployed safely. I love it. And, and so I want to come back and have an entire China episode at some point, by the way. So I'm going to follow, follow up with Lauren to set Absolutely. that up. Absolutely. Um, but my, my last question, I'm going to you go back to St. Louis for a second. Your dad's driving around having conversations with folks about where you should go uh, in terms of Northwestern. If you could, if you could sit down and, and, have a, and have a coffee or maybe a beer or yourself at that point and give you a piece of advice, what would you say? I would say um, be more confident in asking questions and challenging the status quo. And I, it took me a while before I finally had the gumption to go off and set up my own business. Uh, yeah. It's going to be uh, at the age of 32. And I don't regret it one bit. I wish I would have uh, taken a bolder path up front, but I was always somewhat reticent looking around someone someone else. But I would say, hey, just be confident, ask questions, challenge the status quo, because it's really the change of thinking uh, that's really what's defined, I think, uh, my career, but also that of CEA. And so if I had a, what's going to dime for everyone, every time someone said, don't be an independent third party. That doesn't exist. It can't happen. Uh, but sure enough, you know, we we took a path of creating a new model and creating QA as a standalone service for the downstream. Uh, and I did that partially because I had this non-compete with Trina. I chose to honor that. But I also saw that there's an opportunity to really impact the industry, to create a platform where, you know, a, a whole set of buyers and once again, we work with clients or client head client projects in over 57 countries. These folks have additional confidence, knowing that we're in the factories, adding value to to their uh, to their overall project because we're mitigating risk, taking out uh, bad product, and making sure that they're getting the deliveries they can. So, excellent. Um, that would have been the the story I told myself. Andy, that's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, John. This has been a lot of fun, and I definitely look forward to the next conversation. Absolutely, and Lauren. Uh, special thanks to Lauren Glickman uh, from Renewcom for helping to set this up and. For uh, our producers, Carly Batten and, and Colleen Young for helping to put this together. You can learn more about uh, Clean Energy Associates and the work they're doing. Uh, we'll link to it from the podcast page. Uh, you can always find more episodes at cleancapital.com. And as always, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.